This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good evening. Uh, thank you for uh, braving the weather and, and making another mini-med school. Uh, it's really a pleasure to be here and to talk about something that I'm really passionate about, which I imagine will come through in this talk, uh, the importance of sleep. And so I, you know, I will admit that I didn't choose the topic for this, though I'm really excited to, to talk about it because it's a really important one um, and really fits well within the, the med school framework that you guys have been going through, um, though I was kind of struck by this sleep-worthy connections, and so I was thinking about that on the way here, and I thought, you know, I guess it could be taken kind of one or two ways, right? Like, sleep-worthy, it's really great, or like, sleep-worthy, like we could sleep through them because <laughs> it's like... And I, and it, but then I was reflecting on that and thinking, like, either way, you win, right? Like, like the, I got the point across, like the enthusiasm about sleep and then, like, the importance of sleep, kind of the, the need to kind of take the time for sleep and, and make it a value in your life. And that's something that I'm, I'm, I care deeply about. And one of the reasons that I really care about it is because it, it has kind of dramatic, uh, significant impacts on your health and well-being, including your metabolism and then kind of your immune system. And we'll talk about both of those things today. Uh, first, lay the foundation of kind of what is sleep, how do we define sleep, how do we measure sleep, um, and then kind of move into what is the, the bulk of this talk, so sleep and metabolism, and particularly um, thinking in the context of, if you, you know, if you sleep less, do you weigh more? Sleep and inflammatory functioning, so inflammation has become kind of what is thought to be one of the central biological pathways through which a lot of things in the world and our behaviors uh, affect our risk for disease, and sleep seems to be uh, strongly related to that, and so we'll, we'll discuss that uh, a little bit more. But not to leave on kind of a, a sad note about, oh, I'm not getting enough sleep, I haven't gotten enough sleep during my whole life, um, now what? Uh, you know, the, there's kind of emerging evidence on sleep interventions and like ways in which we might be able to move around sleep in a positive way to actually improve our metabolic health. So um, first, you know, sleep, who does it? Well, it, I'm going to guess that everyone does. So we're going to 100% of you sleep. Um, it turns out that a third of a, a third of your life is spent sleeping, um, and for some that's like, oh no, you know that was a third of life I could have been living. Well, it turns out that um, most of you don't do enough of it. That's a fact, and we know that. But then also that that sleep, that amount of sleep, that one third of your life is critical to kind of make the most of the time that you're awake. So it's kind of a way of optimizing your functioning. And so, um, you know, it turns out if you live to 75, you typically sleep about 219,000 minutes, um, or hours, excuse me, um, spent asleep. So that's, that's a lot, right? But, uh, you know, most people don't do enough. And so, in fact, if we look at this map, this is census data, so, uh, uh, you know, done through the CDC to look at the variation that we see in the amount of sleep that people get. And so this is percent of people who don't get seven hours of sleep per night. To get less than seven hours of sleep per night. And it turns out that the American Academy of Sleep Medicine and the Sleep Research Society um, have come up with a, a criterion for, optimal, for maintaining optimal health, adult health. And so that's getting at least seven hours of sleep. And you can see there's no place on this map, um, and so this is at the county level, where people are under around 20% so of the population. And in fact, if we look at San Francisco, um, you can see that there's still the same kind of variation. And you know, a, a, 
as in most cases, San Francisco is healthier as a city than many other places in the country, but we still see that there are places where there's hot spots. And what's interesting for me, and I, not, not a focus of this talk, is that these hot spots and these areas where we see worse sleep kind of map on to lots of other social factors that we think drive variation in sleep. And then also uh, underlying this sleep, we see the same kind of patterning for different health conditions that we know is related to not getting enough sleep, like diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and, and the like. Okay, so, so what is sleep? I mean, there's, you know, we kind of have this understanding of, of what it is, we do it, but it is kind of magical. Uh, it is something that we kind of, uh, you know, I, so I see patients with insomnia. So uh, like, like Ashley, and, and I don't know if she's mentioned this before, we both have kind of clinics that, that treat people that have sleep problems. And one of the challenges with sleep, and especially when it's not working correctly for you, is that you really get focused on how to fix it. But sleep was never something that you did. And it's not something you do. It like comes to you, right? It's, it's this reoccurring experience that's this altered lack of consciousness. Um, and this inhibition of sensory activity, so you kind of are kind of disengaged from the world, though not completely, right? Because you can certainly be kind of startled. You can kind of have that light sleep, you know, uh, that experience of uh, having to get up early to catch a flight, for instance. Um, you know, it's, it's not, your whole system isn't offline, um, but it is this reduced interactions with your surroundings. And so that's what we'll use as a working definition, but it does have some signatures to it. So I do want to talk about this. So the way that we measure it is it's certainly not a static state that happens. Like you're not awake or asleep. It's actually very dynamic. And so this is a, what's called a hypnogram. And what we can see is we cycle through sleep, uh, various aspects of sleep across the night. And so we start at, it, it's, it's typically in kind of 90-minute cycles, and what we see is that we go from awake, which is at the top of that, the, the y-axis of this graph, down all the way into deep sleep, and so it goes from stage one to two to three. Stage three is of, of what's called non-REM sleep is, is the deeper sleep, that slow-wave sleep, that, that type of sleep that uh, when you wake up in the morning, you feel really rested, right? It's that kind that you're always chasing, basically. Um, and so, you know, you go into that, and you kind of cycle up into a wakefulness. It turns out that we wake up lots of times during the night. Most of the times we don't remember it. Um, but then as you can see that red line, uh, that's another aspect of sleep that's also really critical. So it's called rapid eye movement sleep. So this is REM sleep. This is sleep where um, is associated with dreaming, but it's also really associated with lots of other functions. So, um, you know, emotional memory, memory consolidation, REM sleep seems to play an incredibly important role there. And so what you can see is that as you go through the night, um, you get less deep sleep in the second half of the night and more REM sleep in the second half of the night. And so this is why uh, you know, people have a tendency to wake up earlier in the morning than in the, in the beginning of the night because their sleep is kind of lighter as it is. And then it's also if uh, true that um, if you wake up in the early morning into the night, uh, earlier in the morning, um, you're more likely to remember what your dreams are because you're just more likely to be in a dreaming state when it happens, right? It's, and so, so, you know, it's a very dynamic process. And so the way that we look at this is, you know, we kind of have poor people come into the lab and hook them up to lots of gear and have a really restful night's sleep. <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, we're going to study you now. Lights out. And as you can see, um, people do sleep, but, and we can kind of see these patterns in the EEG waves, and so we use this to help us look at signatures of sleep. Um, but sleep is, uh, you know, a, a process that's driven by our biology. And so there are kind of two key processes that um, regulate 
uh, whether we sleep or not. And so these have been very uh, um, kind of creatively named as the S and C process. And so S is your homeostatic sleep drive. And so this is kind of a very simple concept that kind of your need for sleep increases the longer you're awake. That's the S process. And so as that sleep need grows, you know, you begin to get closer to that feeling of sleep. And so um, I think of it as kind of like a balloon. So uh, as you, as, when you start the morning, your balloon is really flat. But as you, as you are awake and you kind of go about your day, it kind of builds up with the sleepiness. Then it gets to kind of this optimal amount. You go to sleep and it lets all the sleepiness back out. And you kind of start back at, at, at kind of a, a flat balloon. So that's one piece of it. But the other is the C process. And so this is your circadian rhythm. So your circadian rhythm is uh, you have rhythms in all the cells throughout your body, but this one is really important. It, it lives in your brain, um, and it's very sensitive to environmental cues and sunlight, and it, it's trying to always tell kind of when we should be awake and when we should be asleep. Uh, and so you can think of these kind of that C process is kind of going up and down, and it you can think of it as kind of alerting signals. And so when uh, when people when we're awake during the day, you know our alert signals are high, our circadian rhythm is moving, um, and then when we get toward nighttime, if, if your circadian rhythm is nicely aligned with your sleep, your homeostatic sleep drive, that's the perfect scenario, and that's what we see here. Uh, so alerting signals are going down, sleep need is at its highest peak, and so you go to sleep and you have a nice restful night's sleep. Now, of course, our circadian rhythms are a little bit different. We do see, as we age, a shifting in our circadian rhythms. So as we get older, we become more um, kind of uh, phase advanced, meaning that you tend to want to go to bed earlier and get up earlier in the morning. Um, um, and so that can all sometimes affect uh, the, how well aligned these types of things are, and, and, and that's, that can be a challenge for some people. Um, and so speaking of sleep and age, obviously we don't sleep like we were kids anymore, right? Um, and this is, you know, this is always kind of a challenge because, you know, what does this mean that we're not getting enough sleep? You hear all this uh, stuff about, you know, if you don't get enough sleep, you're going to get neurodegenerative diseases or metabolic syndrome or diabetes. And, you know, it turns out you're not sleeping as much. And it turns out that, like, we have to recalibrate what we mean by adequate amount of sleep. And so, as you can see here, um, what happens as, of course, we sleep more when we're younger, you know, when we're teenagers, like everything is off and not working well. And if you have teenagers at home, you, you surely have this experience. But also the amount of sleep that we get as we age changes. So if you look below this line here, this is a WASO. This is called wake after sleep onset. So everything below this line is sleep, and this is the number of minutes here on the, the y-axis. And so what you see here is, is as we get older, kind of the, this area gets smaller, and we don't really have a good understanding of why people, as they age, get less sleep. Um, you, know, we, you know, we had this concern like, oh, no, this, this might be something biological that, that may confer risk. But we actually don't have a good handle on this. And this is something that I often face in, in the clinic that I run where, where uh, folks are kind of sleeping less and they're really concerned. Um, but we're, this is another instance where sleep science is kind of a new science and we're still trying to figure that out. But one thing that is notable is that this slow wave sleep, this deep sleep, does decrease as we get older. Um, and then kind of this lighter sleep um, gets you get more of this. And you also get more awakenings uh, during the night. Some of this is due to kind of uh, changes in, in kind of urination frequency that often kind of contributes to uh, disturbed sleep. But some of it is just kind of more wakefulness during the night. And so what does this mean? What does this mean for our health? What does this mean for um, 
everything. Well, it turns out that sleep, the amount of sleep that you get, the quality of sleep that you get, has been related to a whole host of biological outcomes. Like Ashley mentioned, I do a lot of work on the immune system, and we know that, uh, for instance, uh, if you don't get enough sleep, if, or if you get, say, six hours of sleep per night, you're at increased risk for getting uh, the cold, the common cold. So we take people into the laboratory, and we, you know, we measure their sleep beforehand, and then we actually uh, inoculate them with the rhinovirus, right? So these are people that get paid for it, but, you know, still not, not the ideal study. It's usually, you know, people that need the money and, and yeah, graduate students, things like that. Um, and, and so, and so, you know, and what it turns out is time and time again, we find that people who get less sleep, say uh, six or fewer hours are about four times more likely to get this cold than people who get more sleep. So we know that it plays a role. Um, but it also impacts a lot of biological processes that are important for chronic conditions. So not infectious disease when we're talking about kind of exposure to viruses, but chronic conditions. And the one that um, comes up again and again has been in the context of, of weight gain and, and changes in metabolism. And so I'm going to talk a little bit about that. So again, let's look at this map. Um, and so we see this variation. One of the things that's really interesting about these maps is that, as I mentioned, they map onto these other, bi these other health outcomes. And so it's not as clear in the next slide I'm going to show you, but um, a lot of the hot spots in the patterning, um, so this is obesity um, in, in across the country. And um, if you had them on top of each other, you would see that there is this relationship. And of course, it isn't necessarily causal. I mean, not, you know, that, that wouldn't say that. But it is kind of curious that we see these associations. And so, in fact, kind of what, what is the evidence that sleep is related to obesity? Well, uh, this has been... Um, say, probably for the last 15 years, people have been really interested in this question, and so they've been focusing on epidemiologic data, so meaning kind of population-level data, uh, where they, you know, measure thousands and thousands of people and ask them a question about, like, how much sleep do you get uh, in general? And then they, then they ask, they get measured, or they ask them about their weight and their height and get a, at a, a, a body mass index to give them uh, an estimate of obesity risk or whether they have obesity. And so there's been so many of these studies that they can now pool them to do what's called a meta-analysis. So not just looking at an individual study, but kind of looking them all together to see to the extent that there is a, a strong effect um, when we look across studies that have lots of different um, kind of methods and, and things like that. And the other piece that's really important is is that this is a meta-analysis of prospective studies. So these are studies in which the people at the beginning, they didn't have obesity. They weren't, they weren't obese, and, uh, but they had information about their sleep, and then they followed them over time for a second time point to know about weight gain and whether they ended up uh, uh, meeting criteria for obesity. And so when they pool these studies together, we do see uh, a significant effect for short sleep duration. So people who sleep less are about, uh, compared to people who sleep, um, say, a norm, what, what in most of these studies are considered a normal amount of sleep, and so this is like eight to nine hours of sleep, are about 25% more likely to uh, be, meet criteria for obesity. So we do have some kind of large epidemiologic data that suggests that there is this association. I will say that it also um, seems to be true for other things like people's just report of the quality of their sleep. So it's not necessarily about the amount in some cases. It's about kind of whether they kind of, when they globally think about their sleep, um, it just feels bad to them. And that, that's, that's a kind of a, an interesting topic in itself. But uh, we do see this kind of convergence of information. And so then it, we're kind of left with kind of what, like how, how could that happen? Now, there's actually lots of ways that this could happen. Um, and so when we think about insufficient sleep, uh, we think about um, kind of a bunch of different pathways through which uh, 
not getting enough sleep could impact uh, obesity risk or weight gain. And so first is uh, these direct effects on satiety hormones, so hormones that tell you whether you should be full or should be hungry. And I'll talk about some of that data. Kind of direct effects on things like insulin and glucose regulation. But beyond just biological things, kind of in the brain, you know, sleep lives in the brain, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's where it's generated. That's where it's experienced. And so it turns out, to no surprise, it affects kind of how we interact with the world. And at a neural level can, in fact, affect how we process things that we think are rewarding, right? Um, and then finally, it can affect our... Uh, kind of hunger or kind of our intake. So in this case, intake meaning you're awake longer. So to keep up that energy, you probably need to eat more. And so then the question is, if that's true, if we can measure someone's energy expenditure, do people eat more than is necessary, right? So it's not kind of refuting the idea that it's just about, well, you need to keep your body up, up and awake. You know, that, that makes sense. Um, the hunger one is an interesting one. I don't know if anybody can relate to that. I have... Uh, two little kids, and so I haven't seen like a good night's sleep in their six, year old, six years of their lives. Um, and I do find that when I don't get enough sleep, I, am, I, I have like a, a change in like kind of my interest in certain types of foods. Can anyone relate to that? Yeah, okay. I hope that got picked up on the video camera. So, okay, so we're doing it together. It's not just, uh, not just me. So, okay, so we have all of these different pathways, and then we think that, that you know, together in some way they might impact weight gain or obesity risk. And then that weight gain or obesity risk uh, through or obesity can then impact, of course, kind of metabolic complications like type 2 diabetes that we know is, you know, closely tied to uh, kind of weight gain. But then one that I'm not going to talk about but I think is really important is it also, that waking can impact your likelihood of having a sleep disorder. So one of the like critical sleep disorders when we think about this is obstructive sleep apnea. Um, and so this is kind of obstruction uh, of breathing during the night when you're sleeping. It's often, often kind of related to snoring um, and can cause um, kind of increased hyperarousal because you're kind of gasping for breath. Uh, it turns out that that, um, you know, if you have that, you often then experience insufficient sleep. And so it kind of is like the, a cycle, right? Then you begin to experience these things again because you're, you have this obstructive sleep apnea on board. The good news is uh, very treatable, right? So uh, uh, CPAPs, uh, continuous pressure airway um, something, CPAPs, uh, <laughs> do a great job in treating sleep apnea. So, so in case you were uh, wondering about that. But okay, so if we're going to talk about um, how sleep affects uh, um, our, our, our obesity risk and our, meta, our metabolism, we have to think about kind of what regulates hunger to begin with. And so it turns out that uh, this, again, lives in your brain, and, and your hypothalamus, an area of your brain, um, you know, is really important in making a distinction between uh, if your body is rich or poor in energy. Okay, so it's kind of sensing um, kind of the, the energy balance that's going on in your body. And so we have some ways in which to do this. And so it turns out that um, to, to sense fullness, if, if you have a lot of glucose, um, say you, you had a meal and it, it increased the amount of glucose, this leads to elevations in insulin. Um, and insulin then binds to the hypothalamus to tell your body that you're full, right? That you don't need to con keep consuming. This is a very uh, tightly controlled system. Similarly, uh, if uh, you consume fat or uh, from, from fat, leptin is released, 
Um, and so leptin is a satiety hormone that also binds to the hypothalamus. This comes from fat cells, and it also tells you that you're full. So high levels of leptin tell you you're full, and high levels of insulin um, in this kind of c controlled setting will tell you that you're full. And then there's the one that tells you that you're hungry, and so this is ghrelin. This is another satiety hormone released from the stomach um, and binds to the hypothalamus telling you uh, that you're hungry. So high levels in ghrelin tell you that you're hungry. So there's kind of a yin-yang between leptin and ghrelin in that way. Um, certainly more complex than this, but for the sake of this talk, um, you, you'll, you'll pick up what I'm, what I'm laying down here. All right. So, uh, so how do we, if we're going to look at these things, how are we going to know if sleep affects uh, these things in the body, this, these aspects of metabolism? So the way that we do it in the laboratory is we control sleep. Okay? And so we do this by deprivation. Um, we do have an ethics board, so it's not like this. But the internet... If you type in sleep deprivation, that is, that is what it has. Um, and so we do one of two things. We do either total sleep deprivation, where we bring someone into the lab and we tell them, okay, you're going to stay awake for the, the entirety of the night or for two nights. Uh, and we either compare them to someone who sleeps normally or we compare them to themselves when they sleep normally in the lab. Um, the alternative would be something that's called partial sleep deprivation. And this is, we do this more often now because we're trying to kind of mimic what goes on in the world, right? We know we're kind of a sleep-deprived community. Um, and so this is something like, you know, taking people who sleep eight hours regularly and reducing their amount of opportunity for sleep to four hours, so like a 50% reduction. Um, and so then we do that and we, we measure their blood, uh, in, in, uh, to, to look at these things, and we can tell whether kind of sleep deprivation affects, sleep loss affects these outcomes that we are interested in. And so if we do this, um, I'm going to give you kind of a summary for some of these things. So if we do experimental sleep loss, we do see a reduction in leptin, this, this thing that when it's high, it tells you it's, you're full. Um, and this is consistent in all, in all of the well-controlled studies that have been done. Um, it's typically true when we look at like 24-hour sampling. So rather than just kind of looking at leptin in the morning, um, we, you know, we hook someone up to an IV and we kind of measure it across the night. Um, we also see uh, increases in ghrelin, so this one that binds to the hypothalamus to tell you that you're hungry. Um, and not just changes in hormones, we see a concomitant uh, increase in subjective hunger. So it's not just these things increasing, it's actually they're increasing and then telling the body that you're hungry. Okay? And that seems to be that, that sleep loss has a direct effect on these things. And so in one example of this, uh, this is a paper from 2004 where they, the, you know, because these studies are so hard to do, they're always like these really small studies and they're always like really healthy, often men for some reason, um, I think, you know, to control for other hormonal factors that, that can impact this. Um, and so these are lean individuals, a crossover design, meaning that these individuals were, were sleep deprived and they, were sl they slept normally in the laboratory. And so they went two nights of 10 hours of opportunity for sleep and two nights of four hours of, of opportunity for sleep. And so when they sample across, and I apologize, it's a little bit blurry, but the um, bottom line is uh, leptin, um, so low leptin, and then um, and you can see here that ghrelin is elevated, and then the hunger is elevated uh, across the night as well. And so all the studies kind of look like this generally. And so what we find is that it, you know, it turns out that the ratio between ghrelin and leptin uh, seems to track with this change in hunger across the night. Importantly, um, 
not, not, this isn't true across all study findings, um, in part because there's often um, a lot of heterogeneity in the types of samples they use. So if they use people that are obese or they use people, you know, in various ways, um, the timing of when they collect these measures. So it seems like it's really important to look at across the 24-hour cycle. Um, and then, of course, the important to control for dietary intake. So the studies that I'm showing you, they actually do a very controlled diet so that everybody gets the same thing so that we're all kind of working with the, um, at, at the same kind of baseline to understand how sleep affects these things. Okay, so that's satiety hormones. It seems to be in effect. Now, with respect to glucose regulation and insulin sensitivity, again, we see this fairly consistent evidence that if you kind of do an acute sleep deprivation, so kind of one night in the lab or multiple nights in the lab, um, you, get, you see impaired glucose tolerance um, and de decreased insulin sensitivity under both intravenous and oral glucose tolerance testing. So kind of the standard testing for uh, assessing uh, insulin sensitivity, you see that sleep loss impairs that. And so uh, kind of a, a really nice example, and I, and I put it here because uh, the, the first author, Madhu Rao, is here at UCSF, so that's, that's kind of special because she's doing kind of really great work. But um, looking at 13 healthy participants, uh, again, this crossover design, but in this case, they had five nights of four hours in bed, and they compared them to five nights and eight hours in bed. And they used kind of the gold standard for looking at uh, insulin functioning, uh, hyperinsulinemic and euglycemic clamp. And so they, they did this across the night, on the, and they did it on the last night of each of these times. And again, they find um, that whole body insulin sensitivity is uh, lower in people that go through the sleep restriction paradigm um, than uh, in when they were in the non-sleep restricted paradigm. Okay, so if you take all the studies that have done this to date, um, you can see that it's fairly dramatic. So this is insulin sensitivity um, in response to sleep restriction compared to uh, a non-sleep restriction uh, comparison. And you can see that, you know, in some cases, it, it, well, it ranges between like a 16% reduction all the way down to a 32% reduction um, when they do sleep restriction. And then I want to talk about sleep fragmentation because that's, that's actually really interesting because sleep, as I mentioned, is, is not just one thing. It's, there's a various um, aspects to it, including REM sleep, slow wave sleep, all these things. And we're really interested in not just what happens when people don't get sleep, but is there something special about certain aspects of sleep that affect our metabolism? And so only a couple studies have done this because it's really hard to do, but um, focusing on slow wave sleep. And so imagine in this case, it's not just taking someone to the laboratory and saying you can't sleep um, for four hours, and you can sleep for just the, the other four hours. Um, it's actually where you, you get to lay down and sleep, and then every time you go into slow-wave sleep, they wake you up. Every time you go into that deep sleep, they wake you up. It sounds torturous. And so what do we see? So these are fragmentation studies where they actually suppress slow-wave sleep specifically. And what they found, and there's only, again, there's only been two studies that have done this, they find this similar 25% reduction in insulin sensitivity and a 23 reduction in glucose tolerance when they do intravenous glucose tolerance testing. And so then there's been one other study where they've actually compared slow-wave sleep suppression to REM sleep suppression, right? Because it could just be, well, if you suppress slow-wave sleep, that seems to be important, but maybe all the, all the aspects are important. And when they do that, they only find the effect for slow-wave sleep. So another good example of kind of what is important in that richness of that, of that deep sleep. Okay, so 
sleep is really important, but I, as I mentioned, kind of the homeostatic sleep drive is part of it, but the circadian rhythm is really important too, right? That, uh, and, and for those, those of us that have kind of ever experienced jet lag, right? Like, you just don't feel great, right? And if you do, don't tell people, because that's, <laughs> no one wants to hear that. And so, how do they do this, right? How do, we, how do we look at this experimentally? And so one way in which we can do it, though it's obviously not the case in, in, in doing it in humans, is to actually do it in animals, okay? Because animals have like a very clear circadian rhythm and, and, and mice in particular. And so this is a study that was done in mice. And so you can see um, in the red bar, this is the control. That's usually their sleep, sleep time where it's uh, kind of uh, kind of a regular wake and sleep time, and then you can see in this disrupted one where they've kind of sh continuously shift the, the sleep opportunity for these animals. And so it really, really messes them up. Um, and, uh, and so what they find is that one, the sleep disrupted animals, and, and at the same time, they're allowed to eat whenever they want. And they gain more weight um, compared to the control group. And then if you look at their metabolism, they have higher levels of insulin, higher levels of leptin, um, uh, and then insulin and glucose ratio, a, a greater insulin to, to glucose ratio. And then the increase in leptin is interesting, right? Because that was the one that is supposed to kind of make you feel full. And so we're, you know, we're, this is just an example of trying to unpack these types of things. Um, but certainly the metabolism piece uh, it fits with, with what we've seen. And, and this is the case when we look at in humans, um, in shift workers. Has anyone ever done kind of rotating shift work? Yeah. Would you recommend it? No. 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 And so, so it turns out that like 2 million people um, do this kind of shift work. Um, and it really can have some fairly dramatic effects on our health and well-being. Um, and so there have only been a, a couple of studies that have looked at this. But so if you take this example here in a large epidemiologic cohort where kind of this is an example of different people's schedules uh, where, you know, they have work days and rest days or that's kind of broken up with work nights and work days and, and all these kind of things. Um, if you follow these folks, you know, if you look at, so in this case, it was 474 uh, rotating shift workers and compared them to 800 day workers. And they found that the shift workers had a higher waist to hip ratio. So kind of may, maybe more central adiposity as well as kind of a, a worse uh, HOMA IR. So evidence of, of insulin resistance as well as higher levels of insulin and triglycerides. Um, so, you know, I guess the take-home is that it's kind of this combination of sleep and circadian functioning um, that, that seems to be important. And so if we think about, well, okay, if we think about type 2 diabetes, lots of things kind of contribute to your metabolism. Like, where, where does sleep fall in kind of the, the scheme of things, right? And so there have been studies that have looked at that where they've looked at kind of how does sleep stack up to these traditional risk factors? Like, does sleep really add something new? And it turns out if you look across studies, and so in this case, this is prospective studies. Again, people didn't have type 2 diabetes at the beginning and then followed up at another time and, and did. And what we find is that people have short sleep duration, have a, like a 48% chance uh, more likelihood of, of having type 2 diabetes, 21% if they had poor sleep quality, and then obstructive sleep apnea, as I already mentioned, kind of a 102% uh, you know, uh, increased likelihood. Um, and so then you look at kind of the traditional risk factors. And so being overweight, of course, it seems like sleep might contribute to being overweight. So it's not necessarily fair to say that that's on its own, but uh, that is important. Family history, of course, 
Of course family history matters. And then physical inactivity. And I think this is the one that's the most interesting is that we think that kind of being sedentary, though that contributes to being overweight as well, might have, a, have this impact. And it's, its effect is smaller than that of short sleep duration. And so one of the things that I, one of the questions I always get is like, well, if I could give up an hour of sleep to get more exercise, <laughs> like, you know, would that, would that be better? And, you know, I used to kind of think, well, you know, I could, I could see that because, you know, exercise, particularly if you're sedentary, you get huge benefits if you become active at all. Um, and so I guess it probably depends on kind of how active you are to begin with. But I think the evidence is accruing that sleep, getting that sleep might actually have um, similar or if not more benefits um, than exercise in certain circumstances. So, uh, as a sleep researcher, you know that's my new, uh, my new uh, um, line. So, okay. So we've talked about sleep and satiety hormones. We've talked about sleep and metabolism. And so I wanted to get into the into the brain too, right? Um, and so, of course, if we think about how food plays a role in our lives, um, we like it. We like food. Um, we need it. And so exposure to food cues kind of engages this reward circuitry in our brain. Um, and these effects of food cues tend to be more pronounced when people are low on sleep, when they're experiencing less sleep than they need. Um, and so it's similar to being under periods of stress. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of evidence about kind of experiencing stress and your change in the types of foods that you want. And we see the same thing with sleep loss that when people are, have less sleep, they tend to not only crave more food and be hungrier, but the types of food differ, right? So they, te- they tend to, to look for more high caloric foods, more high fat, high, uh, high sweet foods um, that we know can contribute to a negative metabolic health profile. Okay, so what do we know about this? So I think a sleepy brain is a hungry brain, okay? And so we go back to our sleep deprivation paradigm and in this case, again, it's compared to like this guy sleeping normally. That was as close as I could find a picture to what I think that guy looks like when he's sleeping normally. <laughs> and so they do this. They, they put them in this paradigm, and then they put them in the, in the scanner. So they look at their brain functioning. They look at a functional magnetic reson- resonance imaging, fMRI. And while they're in there, they give them these different cues, <laughs> right? So they're like... You know, you're sleep deprived. Here, look at this pizza. What happens to your brain? Oh, look at this broccoli. What happens to your brain? Um, and so what they find time and time again is that it engages aspects of, the, of your brain. And so this is, you know, may seem like a, a, a very small thing, but it's, it's, uh, it's, con- it's the uh, anterior cingulate cortex, which is implicated in kind of your impulse control as well as kind of your emotional centers of your brain. And it turns out that kind of the more that aspect increases, um, in response to um, those different cues under sleep loss versus regular sleep, uh, maps onto how hungry you are for those uh, these appetite ratings. Okay, and so this has been done a, a number of different times. This is uh, another type of study like this where um, you know people are sleep deprived or not, and they they're kind of given different variety of types of foods um, that they look at. And then what we find is that not only is there an increase for wanting foods in general, but there's also an, a difference in the amount of high-calorie foods that they seem to want. And then again, this amount of wanting seems to go up as they feel sleepier, as the, the, the um, sleep deprivation, uh, the more it has an impact on their kind of subjective experience. 
And it also seems to impact kind of emotion centers in the brain. So the amygdala uh, responds more under sleep deprivation to these food cues um, than an arrested brain. And there's a down regulation in what's called your orbital frontal uh, aspect of your, your prefrontal cortex, the piece that's always trying to regulate your impulses, regulate your emotions. That seems to be less online um, in response to sleep deprivation and these food cues than otherwise. Okay, so what does that mean for daily life? So we've done this in the lab. Uh, I always talk about this study because I just think it's just genius, um, where in this case they recruited 14 healthy non-obese men. Again, they did this crossover design. And they had a baseline day. Then they did the sleep conditions. They do both of these things. They get their blood drawn in the morning. And then they have a meal. The meal is critical because it standardizes their hunger. right? So it can't just be about their hunger anymore. Um, but, and then they had this supermarket task where they kind of like put together like a supermarket and gave people like a fixed amount of money and we're like, okay, now try to buy stuff with this, right? So like mimicking like what it might be in the daily world under these periods of sleep loss. And what they find is that <laughs> first they go crazy and just buy like tons and tons of stuff. And they buy many much higher calorie dense foods than if they had their rested night of sleep. And this also mapped onto their increase in ghrelin. So this, this hormone that it, you know, hooks onto the hypothalamus to signal hunger. Okay. And we see the same thing with sleep and soda. This is work that, that we've done where we um, kind of looked at kind of national level data, thousands and thousands of people, to see if there's a relationship between the amount of sleep people got and kind of the amount of soda that they consume. And it turns out that people that sleep six or fewer hours per night um, report 11 to 21% more sugar-sweetened beverage consumption. So, you know, we know that, and if you've been to any of these other mini medical school things, I'm sure they talked about soda, because yeah. that's kind of an issue. Melissa is there. So if you missed it, you can look it up online. <laughs> um, but it seems like those things are linked in, a, in an interesting way. Okay. So why, do, why does this happen? So, well, one of the leading hypotheses is that it's adaptive, right? That, that you know, we eat more, we eat more energy-rich foods because we need to, because we're awake longer. Um, we need to maintain our arousal level. Um, and so it turns out that that may be true, but in a world when food is readily available, people still make different decisions. And so this was a study where they did look at this, and they looked at both energy expenditure, and they looked at kind of amount of calories consumed. And what they find is that although there is a little bit of an increase in energy expenditure, people did consume much more than they needed based on kind of their metabolic need from staying awake. And so it's not just that. Okay. So we have all of these different pathways that can lead to these metabolic complications. Um, another one that's of interest and, and was in the title of the talk, so of course I'm going to get to it, was, is inflammation. So inflammation is another key piece of this. Um, and so inflammation is everywhere. It affects everything. It seems to be one of these central pathways, um, including to type 2 diabetes. Um, but other things as well. And it, it often is derived from our immune cells, though it comes from lots of different places. And so this is a, a macrophage um, uh, eating some bacterium is going to begin to let out some of its inflammatory proteins that help facilitate this process. 
And inflammation on its own is like a critical thing. We need it to survive, okay? It plays a, a huge, these, these proteins and all the inflammatory aspects that come along with them are critical for communication within the immune system and facilitating wound healing and kind of, uh, you know, orchestrating the troops, your immune cell troops to kind of free you from danger. But the thing is when it's elevated for a chronic amount of time is where we see this relationship with chronic disease. And so when we think about biomarkers of inflammation, we think about pro-inflammatory cytokines. And so in this case, interleukin-6 or IL-6, IL-1 beta, tumor necrosis factor alpha, all three of those are kind of in the, the trifecta of inflammatory, uh, pro-inflammatory proteins. And again, they come from lots of sources. So activated immune cells like macrophages, uh, fat cells, uh, especially visceral fat seem to be kind of this metabolically hot inflamed fat. Um, and then even muscle cells like myocytes. Um, and then beyond those proteins, we have acute phase proteins, the one that's really uh, kind of of relevance and is uh, something you can get at your doctor, is a C-reactive protein. Uh, this is released by the liver in response to increasing levels of these other pro-inflammatory mediators, in particular IL-6, drives the increase in, in C-reactive protein. And so just because, because we have this uh, metabolic talk, I just want to talk briefly about um, uh, fat cells. And so fat cells seem to, you know, there's growing more and more evidence that they are a critical source for these inflammatory proteins. And it's not just that the cells themselves, the adipocytes, can release these proteins, but they seem to be kind of magnets for these immune cells, for these macrophages that become kind of necrotic in the fat cells and become super inflamed. So it's a, it's a kind of a, a one-two punch of the adipocytes uh, releasing pro-inflammatory cytokines, and then these macrophages that kind of get caught inside of these adipocytes uh, that contribute to kind of this inflamed profile. So then the question is, okay, does sleep, does sleep really contribute to elevated levels of inflammation? And so, again, people have been really interested in this, and so they've developed, you know, there's been enough studies where we can really kind of pool them to get a better estimate of kind of what is the effect. Because, of course, a lot of these studies are small, and so what is the overall story here? And so what we see is that um, when we look at people that have short sleep duration, we see small effects, but some often significant, though there are larger effects for people that sleep longer. And so I haven't talked about this yet, but there's a whole other literature about long sleepers. And so these are people that like sleep 10 or 11 hours per night. Um, and we don't have a really good understanding of why that is. Do they need more sleep? Or is it really a marker of something like um, underlying illness? Right? So when we get sick, as you know, you, know, you get a cold, you sleep more. You know, and that's thought to be uh, adaptive, but if you have a chronic condition and you're sleeping all the time, maybe that's why there's this relationship between long sleep and inflammation. Another possible explanation is depression. Depression is often correlated with hyperinsomnia as well as some of these inflammatory markers. So we're still trying to figure that piece out, but um, you know, there does seem to be these relationships on both ends of the continuum. But then beyond that, there's also evidence that sleep disturbances, so uh, symptoms of poor sleep, having a diagnosis of insomnia, also seems to be related to elevated levels of inflammation. So if we look at this kind of this plot of all the different studies, and so this is sleep disturbances, and the, and the marker that we're looking at is IL-6 in particular, you can see that on the right side of the line is in the, the realm of a positive relationship. And, and then those like big whisker lines are kind of the, the, the variance, the kind of confidence that we can have. So the shorter, the smaller the lines, the more confident we are in that estimate. And when we pull them together, we see this kind of modest um, effect size, meaning that there is this relationship between sleep disturbances and IL-6 specifically. 
And so one of the reasons that we think that there is such a small effect is because one, they come from lots of different places, these, these inflammatory markers, and so there's lots of things that can be attributing to the, the variability in them. And so one way to get at this more closely is to look at the actual cell and whether it's, it looks like it's going to begin to produce more of this pro-inflammatory marker. And so by doing this, we can look at the, how much the, the cell's uh, DNA, we're seeing kind of gene expression of, of those markers, so ones that are, that are of, of importance. And so we can kind of take uh, people and have them be sleep-deprived or not, and then look at their cells, sometimes stimulate them, and see whether those cells become upregulated for those genes that we think are going to lead to more inflammatory proteins. This also helps us control the source of where those proteins are coming from. And so when we do this, we see kind of a fairly consistent upregulation, and that's the left graph there, of uh, these inflammatory genes. So in this case, IL-6 and T tumor necrosis factor alpha. Um, and then this this guy on the right here is a heat plot of a variety of different genes. And what's interesting is we see kind of variation in kind of the upregulation in, in the pro-inflammatory uh, direction and then a downregulation in uh, as genes and uh, processes that we think are important for regulating inflammation. So kind of this upregulation on the protein side and then that kind of a downregulation on aspects that help control inflammation. But I think one of the things that's important to think about, again, we focused on sleep, is that sleep is, is just a thing. Like sleep is, it doesn't exist in isolation, right? And so when, when sleep researchers like myself are like, oh, sleep, what about sleep? Study sleep. And it's like, we think about it like this. Um, but, you know, people live in the world, you know, and they have lots of different things. And so um, we know that a lot of the aspects that sleep affects, things like stress also affect. And so we become really interested in whether there's this kind of um, uh, synergistic effect for this. And so um, if we think about these recursive processes, so people that are stressed during the day, you know, no big surprise, they tend to have poor sleep at night. And what has been kind of really interesting to us has been, you know, if you have very little sleep, are you more sensitive or reactive to stressors during the day? Does, you know, if you have a really bad night of sleep, does that traffic seem just a little worse? Like, what is happening to San Francisco worse, you know? Um, and so, you know, and when we think those things all exist. And so taking an example here where we do it in the laboratory, this is kind of a, a classic way that health psychologists try to understand how stress affects the immune system, is that we bring people into the lab, um, we measure their sleep ahead of time, and then we put them through a th something that we think is really stressful. And so in this case, it's giving a speech and getting negative feedback while they do it. <laughs> right? So you guys have been very kind with the laughter and the smiles. But imagine if you were giving a similar talk like this and just got kind of like negative feedback, like, you know, arms crossed, like shaking your head, like, you know, things like, wow, this person just is not living up to the billing. Um, and so, you know, they, they, we have them do that. We also have them do a serial subtraction task where they have to kind of subtract by 13s. And, you know, every time they get it wrong, we're like, stop, start over, stop, start over. You know, it's very activating. Let's just say it's activating. And then we, at the same time, have an IV in their arm, and we're drawing blood the whole time, right? So it's like the perfect storm of things so that we can track how their inflammatory pattern changes in response to this stressor. And what do we see? Well, we see that it really matters how much sleep they get before or how much they sleep they get globally. So in this case, we see this increase in IL-6. In this case, it's IL-6 to IL-10, um, where we see an increase in this slightly. 
People that are average sleepers, we see a stronger one. But people that are poor sleepers have a dramatically increased one. And this is particularly dramatic among people who also have higher visceral adiposity. So it's not just sleep, it's not just stress, but it's also kind of the metabolic profile that you bring in, right? And so we're still trying to unpack these things, but it, you know, they're clearly, inter- there's intersections here that we need to understand. And what the good news about that is, because I don't want to give you just bad news, is that means that there are lots of opportunities for intervention, right? Sleep interventions work for some people. Stress interventions work for other people. Dietary interventions work for other people. But it gives you lots of targets. And so as a, as a clinical health psychologist, that's really important to find something that works for the person, right? Okay. And so all that information. Oh, my God. Sleep. I need more sleep. What can be done about this? Well, there are things we can do, um, and we're trying to figure that out. So just here, a little bit of more data, then I'm going to go to kind of, uh, you know, we're going to wrap up here. So um, there are lots of ways to do this. In experimental settings, when we deprive people of sleep, we can actually give them recovery sleep to see if things improve when we give them even more sleep opportunities than, than their normal nights. In intervention settings, we can do things like sleep extension protocols. These are really challenging to do because it turns out people don't sleep for lots of reasons. But if we can find people that we can actually give them more opportunities to sleep and they do it, we can see what happens to them. Among people who have insomnia, the frontline treatment for this is something called cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia that's been shown to be very effective in improving sleep. Um, And so we can see if that changes their biological profile. And then, of course, there's pharmacologic intervention. So, like, what happens if you just start taking Ambien or Zolpidem, you know, the trade name Ambien? Like, does that improve your metabolic profile? So what do we know? So it turns out this is a very, very small literature, so I'm going to go through it quickly. If we do uh, a sleep um, recovery... So in this case, people have four nights of regular sleep, then deprived sleep, then um, two nights of either, then 12 hours, then 10 hours of opportunity. Um, you can reverse the insulin sensitivity that you, you produce during the sleep restriction. If you do a sleep extension, in this case, it's 16 healthy non-obese individuals. They were all uh, reported sleeping less than seven hours on weekdays before they came into the study. Then they went through two weeks of habitual sleep where we just kinda, they just kind of measured their sleep out in the world to make sure that, in fact, they were getting very little sleep. And then doing an extension where they just asked them to sleep, uh, to give themselves one additional opportunity hour um, at night. And so this shows uh, what this looks like. And so it, just, it was just on the weekday, weekdays. And so that's this one over here. And you can see they started at week one, week two, where they were kind of short sleepers and then uh, were extended here and they were able to do it. So that's really important for whether this is an actual feasible intervention. Um, and what they find is that they get, uh, as people increase their sleep time, they see an increase in, in uh, uh, glucose, a, de- a related decrease in insulin, and a related improvement in, in HOMA-IR, the homeostatic model of assessment of insulin resistance, um, all improved um, in these patients. And these weren't patients that were selected for having metabolic problems. Okay. Cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. Again, this is not something, you know, we don't have a lot of studies for this, but there are some kind of interesting um, findings. Uh, for those that are not familiar with it, this is a combination of sleep hygiene, a sleep restriction protocol, so we can increase your homeostatic sleep drive, that S process, as well as uh, stimulus control, meaning that you don't lay in bed when you're kind of worried and waiting. You, uh, you get up and at the same time every day in the morning, and then kind of cognitive strategies to help you deal with kind of these catastrophizing about not getting enough sleep those types of things. Um, if anybody is interested in, you know, they're like, oh, wow, that sounds like me. Um, you know, we do have a clinic here, so I put that information there um, to treat people with insomnia. Uh, and then, as I mentioned, Ashley Mason here, Dr. Mason has a group clinic if people want to do group therapy through the Osher Center. 
Um, and so what do we see in, in CBTI? This is only, so it's cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, short CBTI. Um, they lo they've looked at inf inflammation. And so what they find is that one, uh, and in this case it was compared to a Tai Chi intervention, also been shown to improve sleep um, and, and it is of great interest. Um, and what they find is that sleep improves. So this is a score on the Pittsburgh Sleep Quality Index with a higher score meaning worse sleep. And so the bottom line is the CBTI intervention, the, the insomnia intervention. And so as expected, you see the, the biggest effect there. Um, and then if you look at people that have uh, what's considered high C-reactive protein, and so this is a C-reactive protein level of uh, more than three uh, milligrams per deciliter, um, which is a, a, a clinical risk fact cutoff for uh, cardiovascular risk, um, you see that the people in the CBTI condition uh, remain low while the, the other groups seem to creep up. And so it's, you know, it seems like you, know, you can interpret it different ways, but this at least seems to keep it stably low relative to the other interventions. The SS condition was a sleep hygiene con condition. And so what about pharmacologic interventions? Wouldn't it just be easier to take a pill, right? No, no, it's not. Um, it turns out that taking pills for sleep is something that is very helpful in the short term. It becomes psychologically addictive almost immediately. Um, and so, you know, to, to keep that in mind. But for science purposes, yes, of course we want to know if we improve sleep, can we improve these, these outcomes? And so uh, there has been one study of Zolpidem that's been done where they did this at 10 milligrams um, and then they gave them an OGTT and this was in 12 men. Um, what they found is that compared to the baseline period, 15 days of getting this resulted in um, an 86% increase in the area under the curve um, and had no real effect on insulin, um, suggesting that when you take those things together, this may be kind of pushing someone towards an impaired insulin sensitivity. I will be honest, they have not done very many studies of this. So, you know, it, and, and of other sleep aids. And so we don't really know, but um, we will... Uh, we will uh, keep doing this work in some fashion. So more studies are needed. Okay, so what can you do? What can you do to improve your sleep, right? Um, it turns out that there are things that you've kind of always known about, right? The kind of the, the tried and true sleep hygiene things. But I will say, having treated lots and lots of people with sleep problems, you have to do all the things, Right? It can't just be, oh, you know, half the time I leave my smartphone out of the, the room and the other, it's like how I get to sleep at night. And, you know, when I wake up in the middle of the night, the first thing I want to do is check my email. Those kind of things can certainly impact your ability to sleep soundly. And so thinking about the sleep environment, kind of cherishing it for sleep, like setting it up to kind of be ideal for sleep is key. Um, and so keeping the bedroom quiet, dark, using blackout curtains, keeping it cool, we seem to, to sleep better under cool uh, conditions. And so this can always be challenging if you have a bed partner and you have to kind of negotiate these things. One thing that I always tell people is like, you know, it turns out that you didn't select your life partner for their sleeping habits. Like that, that's just a, a, a roll of the dice. And it changes as we get older. And you, you know, you're like, wow, this is not how I thought it would play out. But the rest of the time... <laughs> The rest of the time, if you sleep well, it will be better. We know that from romantic relationship studies of sleep. Um, unplug from the electronics, right? So keeping the smartphone out of the bedroom is one start, but I also would suggest kind of a wind-down period, kind of a unplugging yourself um, at least one or two hours before bedtime. Don't consume caffeine or exercise too close to bedtime. Caffeine has a half-life of five to six hours, 
right? So that means if you consume a coffee at noon, at 6 p.m., you still have half that caffeine in your system. And that can certainly affect other people differently, and you probably know if you're sensitive to caffeine or not. But if you're not sure, try doing it earlier, and if you have sleep problems, see if they improve a little bit. Alcohol, too. Alcohol is great for falling asleep, right? It's, it's soporific in that way for most people. But it fragments your sleep like crazy. You don't get that slow-wave sleep that you love, that you need. Um, so consider kind of consuming alcohol less close to bedtime than, than, um, than doing so. And then avoid long naps unless you, you, know, you, you medically need them. I mean, everybody loves a good nap. Like I said, I have two kids. I love weekends. Weekends is nap time. It's amazing. <laughs> um, but you want to keep them short. Typically what happens is people sleep more than 20 minutes. They, get into, they start going to one of those slow-wave sleep cycles, and they wake up, and they feel worse than they did when they started. And that's called sleep inertia. And so you want to um, try to not do that, particularly if you have sleep problems already, because it's this homeostatic sleep drive, this balloon that I talked about in the beginning. You know, you're stealing some of that sleepiness. It's like snacking before dinner. We know that that's not a good idea. And so this is the same thing. And then easier said than done, but it's very hard to sleep when you're worrying. <laughs> and oftentimes in the middle of the night, when you think you can solve all these problems, like you're not at your best. <laughs> right? And so, you know, having a time to really focus on that, kind of letting yourself you know, enjoy this sleep, kind of letting yourself kind of disengage from the world and let your body do what it's always known how to do um, is, is critical. And so, you know, people are saying, like, well, you know, if you could do two things, like, what would be the things that you would do? So first, the sleep hygiene things, those are easy to do. If you were going to do two things and you had sleep problems, the two things would be get up at the same time every day of the week because your body craves predictability, and if you sleep in two hours later on the weekend, it's like waking up in Colorado or, or Chicago, wherever two-hour difference is. Um, that can, can really make it challenging for your body to know what to do, right? Um, and so that's an easy thing that you can do is kind of set a seven-day-a-week wake-up. You can't decide when you fall asleep. That's not something that you control. You don't make yourself sleep. But you can control when you wake up. Okay, that's, that's the control we have here. Of course, it turns out that if you wake up the same time every day, you end up using the same energy every day, and so you get sleepy around the same time each night. So that'll be, it'll become a pattern that way. But you know, the focus is on like, what you can control in this situation, and sleep is not that thing. Right? That's something that comes to you. And then the other thing is um, you, know, you don't want to lay in bed awake. So if you do that over too long, that kind of begins to feed an insomnia. Your body starts to expect to be awake in the middle of the night, laying in bed. It actually kind of, you know, people that I see that have sleep problems, they, they say, yeah, I was feeling sleepy before I went to bed, and then I got in bed and I like woke up. It was like a switch was flipped. That is your body predicting to be awake when you're in bed. You know, the bed is for, we say, sleep and sex. Like, it's a, sh it's a shrine to those things, okay? And so, you know, if you find yourself unable to sleep, and it's been like 15 minutes, you know, get out of the bed, go somewhere till you begin to feel sleepy again, try again. That, that, that's a good kind of, um, you know, uh, plan for kind of staving off any kind of insomnia if that's something that's about to develop. And so then finally, you know, protect your sleep. 
it's, it's a value. It's a value that I think um, we don't kind of put as much in as other health behaviors like nutrition and exercise. But I think we're getting there. And I think it's important because kind of your metabolism is counting on you to do this. Okay. And so with that, thank you and sleep well. And I'll answer questions. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.